Morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, is where we'll be this morning. And we will begin reading here in just a moment in verse uh, 7, and then we'll read all the way down to verse 19. <clears throat> As you turn there, um, I would like just to take a moment to remind us of what we're reading when we're reading the Gospel of Mark. So your Bibles uh, are a collection of 66 books, um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And within this collection of 66 books, there are different genres, uh, different types of books. There are uh, letters, that is, letters that apostles wrote to uh, first century churches with instruction, with instruction on how they should worship, how they should believe, what they should believe about God, about Christ, about sin. And so we read those letters of instruction to, to learn who he is and how we are to walk with Jesus. But the Gospel of Mark is not a letter. What we find in the Gospel of Mark is historical narrative. In other words, it tells a story. A very real story of real, very real events that happened in real history. It is not an articulation of arguments that sort of build on one another, though there are some themes that are tied together. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, rather, it just tells the story of the person and work of Jesus. We, we get to see what he did and, and what he said and what he was like. Thus far in the Gospel story, we have seen Jesus's authority put on display by what he did and what he said. So let me just give a, a like 25 second recap of the authority of Jesus we've seen. We have seen that he is the one promised from of old who has the authority to immerse people in the very spirit of God. This was the cry of John the Baptist. We have seen that he is God the Son with whom the Father is pleased. He teaches with authority like no other. He casts out demons. He heals diseases, cleanses lepers, calls paralytics to walk, forgives sins, calls the worst of sinners into fellowship with himself. He's the reason for all of our fasting. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. We fellowship with him and we look for the day where the, the ceremony will be complete, where we walk down the aisle and we meet our Savior. He is our Sabbath rest, the Lord of the Sabbath, and the place that we find all fulfillment and all resting. We have learned so much about who Jesus is in just the first two chapters of this gospel. But along the way, as the story is continually told, we not only learn by what we see about Jesus, we learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We learn what it looks like to reject Jesus. The passage we turn to this morning is one of those passages where we see multiple groups of people responding to Jesus in different ways. And by looking at these multiple groups of people and how they're responding to Jesus, not only is this just a description of what happened, I think that Mark in includes this, and he intends for us to, as we read, he intends for us to ask, where do we fit in? Where do we align ourselves when it comes to the groupings of people and how they respond to Jesus? In the passage we're going to read this morning, we're going to see the crowds, 
And then we're also going to see those who were specifically called by Christ and how these two groupings of people are responding to Jesus. So with the question in mind that I think Mark intends for us to ask, where do we fit in in the story? Let's read verses 7 through 19, and then let's pause and pray that God would grant us understanding. So let's read. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard that all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. And, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom gave the name Boanerges, something, I tried to pronounce that, really struggle with that. It, it, it means sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Tom, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, I must confess um, that I had, a, I had a difficult time uh, figuring out how to structure the sermon, how to, to draw out the truth from these passages, as it is just historical narrative, it's stories. God, I pray, um, Father, would you use my, my weakness and my attempt to see what is true in this text, and would, by the power of your Spirit, would you make clear what is true in this text? For us in this room, God, we pray that you would use this inspired word, these inspired sentences that tell this moment in history, and would you use this, God, to build your people in this place. God, I pray, God, for this moment, that it would be a miracle moment where the Spirit of Christ speaks the word of Christ with the authority of Christ, and Christ builds his people. God, may that happen in this place this morning and continue to happen from out this place. Send us out into this community that you might see your people built by the authority, authoritative word of Christ. So, Father, we pray, um, speak this morning through my weakness, um, through your word, and, and help us to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Austin uh, walked us through a scene in the synagogue where Jesus heals a man's hand on the Sabbath. And this completed a series of five interactions, five controversies uh, between Jesus and the religious leader. Uh, Mark has put together five scenes back to back to back where you are, are seeing tension rise between the religious elite and Jesus 
the Christ. And as the tension is mounting last week, we saw that, a, that there was a sort of a tide turn in verse 6 where now not only are they opposing him publicly, but they are conspiring privately to see Jesus destroyed. The Pharisees begin working with the Herodians to see Jesus destroyed. And so the tension is mounting in the story. And, and as hostility mounts, verse 7 now shows Jesus doing what he often does. That is, withdrawing from what's going on in town to spend time with his disciples by the sea. But Jesus' efforts to withdraw from the pressure of what's happening in the town and to spend some time with his closest disciples by the sea, that desire is interrupted. In verse 7, look with me again. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, where the great crowd heard, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they, they came to him. So news about Jesus' healing ministry has apparently gotten out. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in, the surrounding, uh, not just in the surrounding areas of Capernaum, but now it's gotten out farther. Verse 7 and 8 says that there is a great crowd. They are from all over the place. They came from the south. Idumea was a region 120 miles due south. They came from beyond the Jordan River, which was east. They came from Tyre and Sidon, which was 50 miles north. So they're, they're coming from all over the place, and they're traveling great distances to come and see this Jesus. The crowd is large, it is diverse, and it's traveled a great distance, and they're hungry to see and experience Jesus, the miracle worker whom they've heard so much about. Notice in verse 8 how it's depicted. When the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. Notice how Mark does not say the great, great crowd heard, that all, heard about all that Jesus was saying or teaching or heard about who Jesus was. They heard about what Jesus was doing, and now they're flocking to him. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to how this crowd is described and how Jesus is reacting to them. Unlike the crowd pressing in to hear Jesus' uh, teaching in the house earlier in the story, if you remember, Unlike the, the paralytic uh, and his friends getting to Jesus by climbing through the roof and Jesus looking at them and being pleased and talking about their faith and forgiving their sin, Jesus does not commend this crowd in this story for their faith. In fact, the crowd is not depicted in a positive light in this paragraph. The scene, the language of the scene is actually troubling, not pleasing. Now, and this kind of shocked me because I've always sort of imagined, uh, maybe you've heard the story of Jesus needing to get into a boat because of the pressing crowd. I don't know about you, but I've always thought like children's story, colorful, breezy day, happy, smiling faces, and Jesus is like, well, there's no room on the beach. Let's get on the boat. It's like a sweet moment. Like, oh, that's cute. Like, we're, we're preaching from the boat now. Like, this is, I've always imagined this scene to be one that is very sort of light and, and, and beautiful and good. The, the crowds are coming to Jesus. But, but pay 
more careful attention to the text and the way it's described. Look at verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. If you read the text carefully, it's not as light and airy and joyful season or moment of Jesus' teaching. There seems to be legitimate danger of Jesus getting crushed and trampled by a frantic crowd. The scene is more like a, a mob of people pressing in on Jesus, trying to grab at him, trying to touch him. They're apparently pressing in so violently and aggressively that Jesus gets into a boat lest they crush him. Now, I, I want to just pause there and remind ourselves of the miracle of the incarnation and the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was truly human in every way. He was exhausted from the ministry in the town, seeks to go and have a day by the beach with his closest followers. That is interrupted. And in his fullness of humanity, he is tired. And in his fullness of humanity, Jesus is crushable. <laughs> Jesus can be overwhelmed by the mob. Get, get the boat, right? Now, in his divinity, I guess Jesus could have just walked out on the water. But, but in his humanity, <laughs> he's He's crushable. He, he, he's fully human here. And, and, and as you imagine the scene, as people fought with one another to get closer to Jesus, you can imagine how a scene like that with desperate people could get out of hand, can't you? This was a scene of brokenness in the world, if there ever was one. I mean, I mean suffering, sinful people, desperate for a better life, willing to do anything to get it. This is a dark scene of what the kingdom of man is like, and this is why the promise of the new kingdom is so precious. So you've got sick and bro broken and desperate people clawing and trying to get to Jesus. There's another scene uh, in another gospel where they literally try to take Jesus by force and make him be a political king. So, so, so recognize that all the crowds in the New Testament are not necessarily crowds that understand who Jesus is and why he really came. There's lots of crowds that, are, that have their own agenda, that they want Jesus to fit in. And so, so you've got all these people pressing in, and in the midst of them, you've got people that are oppressed by demons. So, so just add that to the mix. I mean, verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. And Jesus strictly orders them not to make him known. So in the midst of the scramble to touch Jesus, there's also demons that are just screaming out. You're the son of God. But again, this is not depicted as a favorable thing. Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you for letting everyone know. They're not worshiping Jesus. They're not bringing clarity to the situation. No one in the crowd knew what it meant or why that was significant. So Jesus' displeasure is seen by him just saying, stop it. Stop adding to the chaos. He does so either because the people are not ready to rightly interpret that truth or because that truth fully known would lead more quickly to his crucifixion. Whatever the case, it's clear, neither the demons nor the crowd are acting in accordance with Jesus's will. And interesting enough, the passage just ends. 
Uh, There's not much closure on the situation. Uh, You don't find out if clarity was brought. In this particular paragraph, verse 13 just transitions with Jesus again, escaping and withdrawing from the crowd, uh, this time into the mountains. And so as I read this paragraph this week, I had to stop and go, okay, what are we to learn about the behavior of this particular crowd and the, the growing popularity around Jesus for what seems to be perhaps the wrong reasons? Well, I think that Mark is showing us in this passage that there is a way to pursue Jesus in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons. I think Mark's telling us here that there's a way to pursue Jesus and yet miss Jesus entirely. And we see this throughout the Gospels, and this is, if you're a note taker, this is truth number one. It is possible to work hard to get to Jesus, yet miss Jesus entirely. It is possible to work hard to get to Jesus, yet miss Jesus entirely. To travel 120 miles to get to Jesus, yet miss Jesus entirely. Think about Jesus' ministry up until this moment. Up until this moment in the gospel, Jesus has been prioritizing his teaching ministry. He's been proclaiming true things about the kingdom of God and who he is. And his healings were signs of authentication to what he was speaking. So you, you track through thus far in the story. He's again and again, he's, he's trying to reveal to people True things about God, true things about him, true things about the kingdom of God coming in the world. So, so Mark 1.14, it says that he was proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one with authority. Mark 1.38, uh, Jesus says, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. Mark chapter 2, verse 2, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Jesus has an authoritative word that reveals who he is and why he came and the miracles validate that truth that he came to proclaim that there's coming a future kingdom and Jesus will be the king but this crowd it seems from what we've been provided in this passage that that they don't get a message here they're seeking miracles instead and 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 i think that if you you seek jesus without seeking his message without humbling yourself to his message you miss jesus altogether i mean we, we must come to jesus on his terms not ours We must come to Jesus as he's revealed himself to us, not as we want him to be. They're coming to Jesus, the miracle worker, and he is that, but he's more than that. He's Jesus, the king of a new kingdom, Jesus, the teacher of all truth, Jesus, the one with all authority, the reason for our fasting, the focus of our obedience. He's Jesus, the son of God, who came for the forgiveness of sins. Sins, that that was their greatest need. Sin that brought on death eternally. Jesus came to confront that with a perfect life and a death on a cross in their place. He's the Jesus that says, that says follow me. And, and we're expected to drop everything and follow him as king. But it seems that these crowds are working hard to get to Jesus. A Jesus that they had built up in their own mind. Too busy with their own desires to stop and ask who this Jesus really was. 
what this Jesus really came to accomplish. And as I was reading this paragraph this week, I wonder how many of us here fit into this category of the crowds. I wonder how many of us are working hard to get to the Jesus we've designed in our minds. This fabricated Jesus that caters to our own desires rather than his own will. I wonder how many of us are pursuing religion that looks a lot more like idolatry than relationship with the Jesus as he really is. So maybe this morning we need to pause and clear our minds of preconceptions, predetermined opinions and desires, and we need to humble ourselves to listen to Jesus before we begin to make demands of Jesus so that we might know who he is rather than fighting and clawing and pressing, trying to get Jesus to do for us what we think he should do for us. I read a short but powerful quote from Pastor Tim Keller yesterday, and it said this, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. And I think that summarizes well what happens often in the Gospels. The crowd often finding Jesus useful. Yeah, take away our sicknesses and our burdens. Yeah, become a political king, rule over Rome. You are useful to us, but they missed altogether the beautifulness of who Jesus is was it is possible to work hard to get to Jesus yet miss Jesus entirely now mark transitions from this scene to a different kind of scene he retreats to the uh, Jesus retreats to the mountains with his closest followers those who are not there just because they found Jesus useful uh, the story transitions from the crowd to those who are uniquely called look at mark chapter 3 verse 13 and he whip, went up on the mountain and called to, them, called to him and those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, I want you to notice the language and to feel the weight of what Jesus is doing in this moment. He called them, those whom he desired, and they came to him. Do you notice who's doing the action here? Jesus calling those whom he desires. Now listen to what Jesus does in verse 14. He appointed the 12. Now the, the word there for appointed is really stronger than our English rendering here. Uh, the Greek word is the same word that is used in the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mark 3.14 literally reads, Jesus made the 12. He, he brought them into being. He's building something here. <laughs> he's, he's doing something actively, and he names them apostles, literally meaning sent ones. Now, there's something special about this moment. He already had several of these men he's already called. He already called to follow him. There uh, seems to be other disciples even present in this moment. And, and Jesus calls these 12 from their midst, and he names them something. 12, he names them apostles. And there's some important symbolism here. Jesus is, is doing something that, that signals a theological reality. Jesus is creating the New Testament people of God. 
The crowds at the bottom do not represent the people of God, but Jesus' actions here signify what the New Testament people of God will be like. So, so you're going to have to track with me. We're going to do a little Old Testament work, okay? You may need to stretch a little bit, okay? Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham, from you I will make a great nation, and through that nation I'll bless all the families of the earth. God's going to create a people who know him and walk with him and represent him on planet earth. Abraham has 12 great-grandsons, and from them come the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament who are supposed to walk with God and know God and represent God according to the Old Covenant. But now here is the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, and he calls 12 apostles to be with him, to go out from him, to represent him. There is symbolism here that is supposed to teach a theological point. Jesus is building his people, his New Testament people. And this is truth number two. Write this down. Jesus builds his people on the foundation of the apostles. Jesus builds his people on the foundation of the apostles. There's a new Israel now. There's a new kind of kingdom, and it's going to be built on a foundation, a foundation of the teaching and the preaching of the apostles who got their teaching and preaching from Jesus himself. Thus far, nobody in the story but John the Baptist and Jesus has done the preaching. Nobody in the story but Jesus has had the authority over an evil spirit. But Jesus now signals the people-building work, the kingdom-expanding work will be one that is delegated to my people who will speak my words. I aim to build a people for God, and I aim to use people in this people-building project. He appoints apostles to be spokesmen. Now, church, this is very important for us because this is what it means to be a part of God's people. We are not like the crowds who make up a Jesus in our minds, or we, 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 we do not come to a Jesus as we desire him to be. We come to Jesus as he has revealed himself, and this Jesus has chosen to reveal himself through apostles who wrote down the record of who Jesus is. We pursue Jesus according to how he's revealed himself, according to his word. That's why in Acts 2.42, when the church was built, when they believed upon Jesus and were baptized, Acts 2.42, what did they immediately begin to do? They devoted themselves to the, can somebody help me, to the, to the apostles' teaching. We must be a people of the authoritative word that Christ has given to the apostles. We devote ourselves to that. We don't make up the rules. We don't make up doctrine. God makes up doctrine, and we say, yes, sir. And he passes it through his apostles in a book, and we humble ourselves under what God has said, not what man has said. So Ephesians chapter 2 says this well. This is who we are as a people, St. Rose Community Church. This is what separates us from other denominations and other bodies of people. That we are, look at this, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. I.e., you're God's people. Built on the foundation of the apostles. 
New Testament spokesmen for God, and the prophets, Old Testament spokesmen for God, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you're being built up in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus came to build his people, to build his church. And the foundation of that is the authoritative teaching of Jesus through the people he designated as apostles. And this is why we teach the Bible the way we do in this church. Through whole books, line by line, word for word. Because we believe we hold in the hands, in this book, the very words of a living God. And what I say does not matter to you unless I say what God has already said. Unless I make clear what God has already spoken. What you think about Jesus does not matter unless it is whom Jesus really is and what Jesus really said. We are a people founded on the word of God, formed by the word of God, submitted to the word of God, and we devote ourselves to the word of God in everything we do and say. This moment in human history was unique. These 12 apostles were different. Jesus says in the new heavens and the new earth, the 12 apostles will have a special role. I don't quite understand what this means, but Matthew 19, 28 says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation, their names appear on the very foundation of the heavenly kingdom. Revelation 21, 14, and on the wall of the city uh, had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's something unique here, something irreproducible. You don't get to say that you're a new apostle. You don't get to say that you now have authority to write new scripture. You humble yourself under the scriptures that God has already inspired. So there's something very different going on here. He's, Jesus is laying a foundation for, for the people he will build. People built on the word of God. But there are also some similarities here. So there's some ways in which we should identify with these disciples, identify with these apostles. Yes, they are unique from us, but there are also ways that we are united to them. And this is truth number three, and our final truth this morning is this. Jesus builds his people according to his model of discipling the 12. Jesus builds his people according to his model of discipling the 12. There's a pattern here of the way in which Jesus calls his disciples that is true for all people everywhere. We, we've seen how the apostles were unique. But now let's look at how our experience models their experience. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to like rapid fire some sub points here. So if you're a note taker and you've got to write everything down... Try it. Jesus calls us by his grace, not our merits. Jesus calls us by his grace, not our merits. Verse 13, and Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. You know what is remarkable about the 12 disciples is the fact that there was nothing remarkable about them. That's what's crazy about the, the disciples. That's what in Acts chapter 4, when Peter stood up and preached, the thing that amazed everybody was like, are these not just common dudes? <laughs> like, are these not just 
fishermen who just were with Jesus? What makes these guys special so that Jesus would call them to this task? The answer is nothing but Jesus. They were not the brightest, not the holiest, not the strongest bunch. They did not come from noble backgrounds or royal families. In fact, one of the themes of the Gospel of Mark is how stupid and slow the disciples are throughout the whole story until the Spirit falls on them. Jesus tells Peter, who's supposed to be like the head honcho, the loudest one in the bunch, tells Peter that he's going to go to the cross, and, and Peter so goes against what Jesus says. I'm not letting you do that. I'm not letting you go to the cross, Jesus. That Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you don't even understand yet what I've really come to do. And praise God that he calls people like that to build his church. Because if he didn't call people like that, he wouldn't have called me or you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing to things that are. No human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So point number two, Jesus calls us to walk with him. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. Jesus' discipleship model is incredible. We, we take this for granted. This is God in the flesh with all the authority in the world to do whatever he wants, however he wants. He has the authority to just download, like the matrix, every ounce of wisdom and truth and holiness into the brains of these 12. Just be done with it. Just, get, just, just to, just, all right, preacher, I mean, just, just make them. But Jesus doesn't do that. He becomes a man, and he sits around a campfire with them, and he goes fishing with them, and he has the same conversation with them over and over and over and over again. He could have infused knowledge into them, but Jesus calls them to walk with him. The process is relational. It's a journey. He teaches through meals and traveling and suffering and opposition and parables and preaching. Jesus calls these men to an ongoing fellowship of progressive sanctification. This is Jesus' way of discipleship. This is what he called them to do with other people. When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, he says, go get into relationships with other people of ongoing sanctification. And walk through the muck and the mire of the world as you try to be more like Christ. This is the kind of ministry that Jesus chooses to invite you into and he chooses to send you out into. One that walks with him, relies on him, needs him. John 
says in 1 John 1, 3, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Are you walking with Jesus and walking with others through this extraordinarily ordinary way <laughs> of growing in Christ. Jesus calls us to send us. Verse 14, you realize that what Jesus is doing is he's going to expand his kingdom through his people. Verse 14, and he might send them out to preach. I mean, the kingdom of God is always an expanding kingdom. A disciple is a learner and a follower, but a disciple is a learner and a follower for the sake of mimicking their teaching and teaching others. No doubt the apostles had a unique role of preaching Christ in an authoritative way, but this pattern of teaching and sending is the reason why we're here this morning. Somebody taught and was sent generation after generation after generation so that so that on the other side of the world in a different time zone in the swamp of St. Rose, Louisiana, there's God's people still teaching, still sending, still growing because to be one of God's people is to be sent by God on the mission of God. These are models for what we are all to be, reflectors of God. And speakers of God's truth. Jesus, lastly, Jesus subpoint, Jesus calls us to unite around him. When you look down at that list of disciples, you have this wide variety of dudes. Peter, loudmouth fisherman, James and John, two brothers who are apparently so rambunctious that they get the nickname Sons of Thunder. Simon the Zealot, meaning, meaning he, was, he was a part of a particular group that thought the kingdom of God was going to be won by warfare. He was, he was someone who thought that, that he could implant himself into the Roman government, and if he could kill a Roman, then that's what God wanted him to do. It was going to be taken by force. He would never identify with a Roman. He wanted to kill Romans. That's what it means to be the Zealot. So you got that dude in the same group with Matthew the tax collector who had joined the Romans to get rich off of the Romans' dollar to oppress the Jews. You think those guys got along over lunch? <laughs> you think they had a lot of in common? They wanted to shoot the breeze and go fishing together? No, no, no. This group was eclectic. This group united around one thing, or rather I should say one person, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. It's, is it not interesting that Jesus in his public ministry, God in the flesh, prioritizes living in a tight-knit community with 12 other people. That Jesus came to build his people to create a missional community. He came to build his church, and the way that he did it was sitting around with the same group of guys and pouring his life into them for three years. That they might go and do that again. And then that some more might go do that again. And some more might go do that again. We'll see later in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It starts small, but it gets big. 
And honestly, that's our lives. If our ministries, they start small. What we do may seem small, just relationships with people pointing them to Christ. But do you see where that ministry, what it's done in the world? <laughs> I, I met, uh, we went last week to Southern Baptist Convention, um, and it just hit me. We were in a room with 15,000 people that all affirmed that Jesus is Lord. They're all singing songs to this Jesus. How did that happen? Over time. People teaching the truth, sending out others to teach the truth, uniting them in little pockets of churches like this one around Jesus. Truth number one, um, it's possible to work hard to get to Jesus yet miss Jesus entirely. Truth number two, Jesus builds his people on the foundation of the apostles. And truth number three, Jesus builds his people according to his model of discipling the 12. Now let me leave you this morning with just two takeaways. And I can slow down for a second. I thought we were never going to make it. I was watching the time expire, but, but we're good. So let me give you two takeaways. Takeaway number one, <clears throat> come to Jesus on his terms not yours. Come to Jesus on his terms, not yours. Do not simply use Jesus for your own purposes. Do not simply see Jesus as a provider of the gifts you think you deserve. Do not simply assume Jesus is like this or like that. Take a posture of submission, submitting to Jesus as he has revealed himself in the word. Come to Jesus on his own terms this morning. Whatever that looks like for you, um, perhaps you've painted Jesus to be something else entirely. Perhaps you've misunderstood the gospel to mean uh, it's uh, your good health and wealth in this world. Perhaps you've misunderstood Jesus to be some sort of taskmaster that you must work for to prove your worth. Uh, the Jesus of the Bible came to live the life you could not live and die the death you deserve to die and rise again on the third day to give you life eternally by his grace, not by your merit. That's the Jesus as he revealed himself in the Bible. Turn to him. Takeaway number two. Join Jesus in his people-building ministry. How are you joining Jesus in his mission rather than begging Jesus to join on with your mission? So much of our praying, so much of our thinking is how we can convince Jesus to jump on board with what we're already planning to do rather than submitting ourselves to what Jesus is doing and being happy to be a part of it. Join him in what he's doing and, and rejoice. <laughs> and be, like you get to be a part of God building his people. One day, one day I will get to sit around the throne of my Savior with other people who came to know the Savior through my relationship to them. Like, I just got to be a part of it. Like, I, like, like I'll see, I'll see Stephen Ralston 
who was a 15-year-old when I was a youth pastor in North Georgia, and he was a mess, and he came forward after teaching the Bible to him for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and finally he breaks and says, this is true, and he gave his life to Jesus. Now he's leading worship somewhere in North Georgia, but one day we'll be in the room together. We'll be like, you remember? And he'll be like, yeah, I remember, and we'll be praising Jesus, and I will just be flabbergasted <laughs> that the God of the universe let me be a part of this shindig. <laughs> That he let me be a part of the people building work. Are you a part of it? How are you a part of it? I encourage you to be a meaningful member of the local fellowship of Christians. Walk with others in community as the 12 did. May it be so throughout our congregation and may we make disciples as Jesus made disciples. Let's pray. Thank God for this text of scripture. And respond in worship. <clears throat> Lord, we love you so much and we pray that you would help us now to respond to your word as you have revealed it in songs in prayer in repentance in joy and thanksgiving help us to respond by your grace and for your glory in jesus name